thanks very much, Rajin, and and thanks uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, Wajid didn't invite me, Mohammed Reza did, but but Wajid facilitated, so thank you both. Um, yeah, good. I um, I did write a book about Sheikh Saduk about a year ago, and Uyun Akbar Rida is is the one book of his that I really felt I didn't give as much space as it deserved, and there were obviously good reasons for that. But nevertheless, it's it's great to have an opportunity to now to talk about it a bit more and get some things off my chest, as it were. It's very difficult to say Akbar or Rida. It's it's the two Ruz. Um, yeah. But anyway, we'll do our best. Yes. Good. Okay. Um. So to start with, then, just my broad approach to this work is what's usually called compilation criticism, and this is simply the idea that compilers of books of hadith are worth taking seriously, not just as transmitters, not just as the people who either transmit the hadith authentically or don't, but as authors in their own right who that doesn't mean they're making up what's in the books, but in how they select and arrange the hadith, they add meaning to them. They they convey messages with hadith as collected into a book that they wouldn't otherwise convey when read in isolation. So this is not an examination of whether or not every hadith in Wa'unakhbar is true. It's an examination of what a Saduq is trying to achieve with this book and and the kinds, the structures of meaning that he is able to create with the hadith that he collects therein and the purposes to, for which he does that. Good. OK. Um, when we want to know what the author of a hadith compilation is trying to do, the best place to start is an introduction. Some hadith compilations don't have introductions, and this is very annoying, but Uyun does, and it tells us some really quite important things. Uniquely amongst Sheikh Saduq's surviving works, Uyunakhbar is dedicated to someone. It's presented to a Sahib ibn Abed. Sahib ibn Abed, who was the very powerful, arguably the most powerful man in Rai, the city in which a Saduq was, was active. Uh, he was the vizier of the Bawahid Sultan, Rukn Dola. And so it's perhaps not surprising that Saduq dedicates this book to him. However, what's important is that Ibn Abad and Saduq were not natural best friends. They had really important and indeed consequential intellectual differences. It's, it's high, um, it seems to have been the case that Ibn Abad actually banished Sheikh Saduq from Rai at some point because he didn't like the way he was thinking and teaching. These intellectual differences can be boiled down into... Firstly, Mu'tazilism. Ibn Abad was a diehard Mu'tazili. He was very committed to, to rational theology and he was correspondingly suspicious of traditionist thought of people like Saduq, whose focus was on the compilation of Hadith. And meanwhile, Ibn Abad was also a Zaydi Shi'i, not an Imami 12 Shi'i. And so, yeah, again, had, had substantial differences with Sheikh Saduq, not least over the person of the 8th 12 Imam Ali al-Rida. So already with this introduction, we're told a great deal. This isn't a book that's just setting out to tell the twelve are faithful about the eighth Imam. This is a book with a with a solidly apologetic frame. This is trying to bring the eighth Imam into a into a contested space, trying to persuade and ingratiate a, a very powerful, politically powerful reader who was not predisposed to to necessarily liking what Saduk had to say. <clears throat> Moving into the text, then, there's a number of ways that straightforward we can see signs of the kind of 
the, the ways in which a Sadduk is, is addressing this, and some of them are obvious, some of them are less obvious. The first is with um, very simple things like the titles of chapters, the titles of verbs. So, um, yeah, the beginning of Oyun is dedicated to Arudal's father, and then it gets on to issues of his birth. However, once you get into Arudal's teachings towards the beginning of the book, the first chapter um, is is entitled Bab Tawheed wal Adl with Tawheed. That is to say, the um, justice and transcendence of God, which which are the the shibboleth doctrines of the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila called themselves Ahlul Adl with Tawheed. And so, uh, yeah, just in, again, in the titles of, of the chapters, Saduk is making very clear overtures to a Mu'tazili reader, despite the fact that we know he was profoundly opposed to many Mu'tazili doctrines. So it works on that level. Uh, but also, when we get into his description of the Imam, we can again see a substantial adjustment of the ways in which a Saduk talks about the Imams in his other works versus how he talks about them here. In brief, when as Saduk describes the dela'il and the alamat of al-rida, that is to say, the signs, the things that mark him out as, as an imam. In other contexts, you would expect this to be lots of miracles, all sorts of wonderful things the imam did. However, in this book, a book, again, directed to a Mu'tazili rationist who is going to be suspicious of the idea that non-prophets can perform miracles, a Saduk pairs it right down. And if you look at all the dela'il that he adduces for al-rida, they... Um, at least the ones that are earmarked as Dela'il, he narrows them down to just two miracles. He says, firstly, if Ar-Rudan knows something about the future, something that seems to be supernatural, this is not because he has some inspiration from God, it's because this knowledge has been transmitted from the Prophet. The Prophet, of course, knows the future, and it is simply a case that, in a perfectly mundane way, this knowledge of the future has been transmitted from the infallible prophet to the imam by his forefathers. So again, paring down the miraculousness of it. And the second thing he says, which gives slightly more leeway, is the imam has istijab at a dua. If he makes a dua to God, God may answer his prayer, including if he asks God to reanimate a statue to attack a wicked caliph, then God is allowed to answer the imam's prayers. No one's going to stop him. So again, um, we see real real overtures to to a Mu'tazili readership here in terms of in terms of the doctrines um, about the imamate that this book puts forth, which, again, are, are really exuberantly different from a Saduk's other works, where he's really quite happy to, to portray the imams doing all sorts of extraordinary things. Um, we The first uh, yeah, page one of the PDF, which is in front. Oh, I can see it. Does that mean when I want it to be a different page, I have to press a button? Yeah, you'll have to yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll try that later. But it's fine because we're on page one. So um, in the middle is Hadith number two. So it's in the Bab is called something along the lines of what Imam al-Rida said about Zaid, i.e. Zaid ibn Ali ibn al-Husayn, the, the first, well, the, the key Imam of Zaidi Shiism, the clues in the name. And the, number two is an important hadith because it's almost unique in Uyun Akhbar because it's neither from Imam Rida nor is it about him. It's in fact from Imam Asadiq, and it just says essentially um, he's talking to to um, yes he narrates from the Prophet that that um, the Prophet tells the saying that a splendid person is going to be one of his grandsons who's who's going to be a good and nice person who will go to paradise due to his heroics. The point being, this is a Saduq going out of his way to praise Zayd. This is a hadith that is ostensibly irrelevant to a book about Imam al-Rida. Um, it's not from al-Rida, it's not about Imam al-Rida, but it's, it's, it's crucial to this 
this ingratiation of the Zaydi potentate who he's talking to. So, so far, this has been, you know, fairly clear stuff of, of making obvious concessions to the kinds of things that uh, Ibn Abad worried about. And as I said, Imam uh, Ibn Abad was a Zaydi and Ibn Abad was a Mu'tazli, so, so um, the instincts are clear. But there's this is more than just miscellaneous um, trying to ingratiate a potentate because the relationship between Zaid and Ar-Ridha is more than just the predilections of Ibn Abbar. Um, as we know, Imam Ar-Ridha was invested as by the Abbasid Caliph Al-Ma'mun as his successor and, and um, for a while was the heir apparent to the Abbasid Caliphate. And at the time, this was really somewhat damaging for imami scholars because, because this seemed to move the imam too close to the wicked Abbasids. The Abbasids were the enemy. Imam Arda has been made a prince by one. How does that work? We, how that played out at the time of Arda himself is, is debatable. But certainly, yeah, um, over 100 years later, non-Twelver Shi'is were still using this appointment of Arda by the Abbasids as a polemical stick with which to beat Twelvers and say, you know, this guy's not a very convincing imam, he's in with the Abbasids, he can't be that saintly after all. And meanwhile, this feeds into a more gen general polemic that Zaydis had against the imamis, which was that, as we know, Zaydi, the Zaydi conception of the imam, um, integral to it was the notion of the imam rising up. If you're a Zaydi imam, you need to rise up and fight against the wicked oppressors, the illegitimate caliphs, the Umayyads, and then the Abbasids. The twelve imams, by contrast, of course, did not do this. Most of, after al-Husayn, imams like al-Baqir and al-Sadiq, and indeed al-Ridha, they, they were teachers. They didn't do any fighting. They, they were wise men who... who um, Yes, communicated through knowledge, and Zaydis were very suspicious of this and said, "This is not real imamate. This is not, you know, struggling against injustice. This is just sitting around." Arrida is, as far as Zaydis were concerned, perhaps the most egregious example of this. Not only is he sitting around not fighting the caliphate, he's actually, you know, going to visit the caliphate and being their heir. So, so the point being, when Asaduk engages with Zaydism and engages with the polemics of Zaydism in Uyun. This is directly connected to the defense of Rida as an imam, as a legitimate imam. And we, we get a sense of this in as we go a bit deeper into a work, into a text that I don't think I included, but I sort of wanted to, but I forgot. So never mind, pretend it's there. Um, uh, Sadiq really sets out to, um, uh, he argues not only that Arrida is a perfectly legitimate imam, he argues that the imamate is to do with knowledge and not to do with just standing up and fighting. But he goes back to the polemic against Mu'tazilism. Again, this is also, he's addressing an audience who are suspicious of imams who are too miraculous and would be ultra suspicious of anything that looked like what Shi'is would call Ghulu, the idea of the imams having semi-divine powers. And what Asaduk does is, is argues that the um, precisely the worst thing that the Rolet do, the worst thing that these people say about the Imams is that they don't die. They, they attribute to them immortality. And this is very, very bad. Why is it very, very bad? Because, of course, the Imams die. Not only do they die, but they are killed by people who do not understand them. The gift that the Imams bring to the world is knowledge and the roulette are wrong because they misinterpret that knowledge. They, they have faulty beliefs, and so the imam, um, they do not believe that the imams are killed 
Um, and so he's he's not only rehabilitating the imam as someone knowledgeable, as someone who who is not justified by fighting, but he's also rehabilitating the imam as someone who dies. He's rehabilitating Arriba as a martyr. Um, this would make more sense if I included the text, but I haven't. So let's move on. Um, yes. Moving on to the actual narratives in the book, um, if I may briefly bang on about compilation criticism again. Anyone who's read a book of Hadith knows that Hadith are not particularly good at telling a smooth, linear story. If you read medieval Muslim histories, often it can be quite frustrating because the narrative jumps around. You get multiple versions of the same events. It sometimes goes backwards in times. We, you know, we're halfway through reading the story about Hussein, but then the next year changes. And so we go back and we learn about this other person who was over here. It's confusing because Hadith, by its very nature, presents lots of semi-disjointed texts. It's not particularly good for, for producing a smooth narrative. And indeed, Uyun Akhbar Rida is a long way from being a nice, smooth, linear narrative of the kind in a novel. All I want to contend is that, yes, Hadith isn't particularly useful for this, but it is useful for other things. And when we pick up a book like Oyun, which presents itself as some kind of biography, if we find that because it's a book of Hadith, it's not presenting a smooth linear narrative particularly neatly, it's probably trying to do something else. If, if, if a Sadhguru wanted to present a nice, smooth, linear narrative, he wouldn't have created a book of Hadith. Instead, he is collecting Hadith to do other things, other things that Hadith are very well suited to doing. The thing I want to focus on here is something which I call motif stacking. Um, what I mean by this is something for which Hadith is very, very suited. What happens if you get, if you tell five different versions of the same story back to back? If you're trying to just get to the end of the story, it's annoying. But what that achieves is it allows the key, the core motifs in that story to be emphasized and and to um, to be clarified. The by virtue of having a story told five different times with some similar bits and some different bits, the similar bits start to start stand out more because because you've read the story three times and in each of the three versions, for example, Yazid was always wicked and Hussein was always good. Exactly what they might have said to one another may differ, but but their characters, their moral status is is emphasized by this. And moreover, I mean, it's like, I don't know, has anyone taught a language? If you're teaching a language, what do you do? You you solidify the core rules by doing minor variations on them. The habtu ilalbait, the habta ilalbait, naam the habtu ilalbait. Um, the point being that you're by introducing the same rules, the same features with minor variations, you solidify those features. That's how you teach people language. That is very much how motif stacking works. This is how um, these compiled different versions of a story work. You, you see variations on the theme of the narrative, and so you get. This is Hussein as a martyr. If Hussein is a martyr, who knows what's going to happen to him? He looks like this. If this is Hussein, who perhaps doesn't know exactly what, what's going to happen to him, then the exact image of a martyr changes, but that allows the reader to explore the broader section, the broader character of Hussein as, as the tragic martyr and all the ways that can look. Hopefully, this will become clearer than it already, of course, is if we look at an example. Um, and I want to start off by moving back to the beginning of Oyun. The first hundred pages, I mean, obviously it varies on the printed edition. Does anyone know a nicer edition 
of Oyun than the one I've got here because this one isn't isn't ideal. Um, no offense to, to the editor, but if anyone knows, then so many more. Um, yes, anyway, for the first hundred page or so pages, um, so a substantial part of the book is given over not to Al Imam Abrilla, but to his father, Musa al Kalbim. Now, as, as many people will know, the if you're going to write about a 12er imam, there are certain things you need to say about their father. Most importantly, of course, the nas, the designation of Calvin needs to have designated Ar-Ridha as the imam. That's a key part of how we know Ar-Ridha is the imam. So it's important to talk about Al-Kalvin, and there are other issues like the waqifis and things like that that need to be sorted out. But as Saduq goes far beyond that in Oyun and really devotes a substantial proportion of the beginning of the work to al-imam al-Kalvin, and more specifically, a great part of this opening discussion of Ar-Ridha's father concerns the relationship between the Imam and the Caliph, between Musa al-Kalvim and Harun al-Rashid, the Abbasid Caliph who imprisoned and then killed al-Kalvim. Now, this is, of course, significant because it, it sets up that same duality, the relationship between the Imam and the Caliph, the Caliph who ultimately kills the Imam, that we have in the story of Ar-Ridha that takes up the bulk of the work. Um, and so what we see in this, this first round of telling that story of the wicked caliph who kills the imam, this time first off with Ar-Ridha's father, is um, a solidification of that image of, of the martyred imam in the face of the wicked caliph. Remember, this is a book that's talking to a potentially Zaidi audience who are fundamentally a bit unconvinced by the idea of an imam who is justified and who is a martyr, but who doesn't do any fighting. And we really see that... Um, emphasized to 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 um compared to the story of al-Ridha and al-Ma'mun this shorter story of al-Kalvim and al-Rashid is really emphasized to an extreme degree in terms of the the pathos and and the 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 visceral nature of, of the story of as how it's told for example al-Kalvim wasn't invited to the Abbasid court as the heir apparent he was imprisoned by the Abbasid so in some says you know he's 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 brought into the presence of the caliph. He's in a similar circumstance in some ways, but but he's more of a victim. He's he's um, his plight is more moving. As Saduk includes hadith, which are quite unusual um, when you're talking about infallible imams, where Al Kalim prays to God in a sort of Gethsemane-like moment, where he's he's praying to be delivered from the fate that awaits him. And similarly, the portrait of Harun al Rashid is 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 extremely brutal. I and mean, there are. There's a wonderful hadith in which, um, an evocative hadith that is, in which um, a courtier comes upon a Rashid at night and he's just standing there by candlelight and he's holding a sword and all night he's just been beheading descendants of Ali and entombing them in the walls. It's it's fairly visceral stuff. But again, this is before we even start the story of um, Ar-Ridha and Al-Ma'mun, we have this this extreme version of it, this, this truly demonic caliph who, who murders this this similarly pious and devoted imam. Um, and so again, it, it's it's a question of solidifying that motif, giving the reader a version of what's going to happen before they even start. So they know the broad outlines of the story, allowing them to then um, be more involved in exploring how different versions of the story might work and, and what the different implications are of, of the variables in it. We move on then to Al-Ma'mun and Al-Ridha themselves, most of the narrative material in Oyun is taken up by the relationship between these two men. Now, broadly, as I've already said, it looks the same as the relationship between Al-Kalvim 
and al-Rashid, that is to say, al-Ma'mun is the wicked caliph, he doesn't like al-Rida, he has him killed, and that's the end. But there is there is more to it than that. Again, there's there's no doubt that, that that's the core narrative, and it's, it's said again and again and again, but within the many, many different encounters between these two men that are narrated, which always end mostly the same way, al-Rida is pious and, and wise and holy, and al-Ma'mun is bitter and twisted and angry and so decides I should kill him. Um, but there's a significant minority of texts where it becomes a little bit more complicated. After all, yes, al-Ma'mun has al-Rida killed, but before he did that, he invited him to the Abbasid court. And Asaduk, first of all, needs to explain this for apologetic purposes. He needs to justify that, no, that didn't mean they were somehow close. However, there are a significant minority of texts that he includes in Uyun, which they don't portray al-Ma'mun in a sympathetic light, but they portray him in a much more complex light than al-Rashid, and certainly than someone like Yazid, the, um, the caliph who orders the death of al-Hussein. Um, and we've got that in the second page. There it is, Dalela Ukhra. Uh, it's a long text. We don't have to read all of it. Um, but essentially, yeah, just, just skip to, so you've got a paragraph, then you've got a line of poetry, then you've got قال, وقال, So this is Al-Ma'mun talking. This is a Dalala of Ar-Rida, that is to say it is a, a wondrous event that, um, that Ar-Rida performed, which proved that he's an Imam. And who's the narrator? The narrator is Al-Ma'mun. The conceit of this narration is that Al-Ma'mun is telling one of his courtiers of an amazing th thing that Ar-Rida did. And, and we have him, yeah, so... so so he's he's weeping. He is he is vexed. He is tormented by by the wondrous signs that this man performed. This man who he himself had killed. The point being that this is an example of a text where Al Ma'mun recognizing recognizes Ar-Rida's status. He knows that he is a wise and holy and man who is much more deserving of the caliphate than he is, and yet he has him killed. The important thing that I want to emphasize is that what. Asaduk creates by by bringing all these texts together in the encounter of Al Ma'mun and Al Rida is the comp the most complicated bit of it. The most interesting bit of it, I think, is the character of, character of Al Ma'mun. Al Rida is of course straightforwardly holy and good. Al Ma'mun is not entirely evil. He ends up being totally evil, but he does recognise that Al Rida is is a good and holy person. He has that basic understanding of the truth and what the truth is, but ultimately due to his own personal failings, his envy, his rage, he turns against the truth. And once he turns against it, he knows what he's done. Let's move to page three. Uh, is that page three again? This, the PDF is largely symbolic. Um, but nevertheless, uh, somewhere in the middle of this page, yeah, about halfway down, this is after uh, it's, it, it starts off as a narrative about how Al-Ma'mun has Al-Rida killed, but in the middle we have Al-Ma'mun responding to the news that it's actually happened, and yeah, more or less in the middle of the page, the line we've got and so on and so forth, i.e. Al-Ma'mun knows what he's done, he's not sitting there laughing and drinking, he, he is consumed with grief and guilt because, because he has done this terrible thing. He's a complex character, indeed one could argue, as I do in the title, that he's a tragic character. He, he recognises the truth of the Imam, but his recognition falls tragically short, and ironically it's his recognition of Al-Ridha's holiness that drives him to invite him to the court, which means that in turn he, he is 
consumed by jealousy because Al Mamun is because Al Rida is so much better than him, which ultimately drives him to kill him. So he's this complex, tragic figure. Um, why is this important? Um, let's move on a bit. Uh, don't read that yet. Um, the book doesn't end with the death of Al Rida, nor indeed does it end with Al Mamun's tormented grief after he's killed him. The book moves on and it does th a couple of things. At the very end, we have Ziyara. We have Asaduk in his, you know, he puts his faqih hat on and he says, this is the, the fadail, this is why doing Ziyara to Imam al in Mashhad is good, and this is how you do it. And he supplies the text for Ziyara as you would expect a faqih to do. Now, this is obviously a useful thing for a Shi'i to have at the end of a book about an Imam. But it, um, when we're thinking about tragedy, it, um, it allows... It, it, it allows resolution to the death of the imam. This is, you know, Al-Ma'moon has, you know, he seemingly wins, he kills his adversary, and yet we, when the curtain falls, he is a wretched figure. He is a figure who has lost everything. By contrast, even though Al-Imam al, al is dead, he still brings salvation to the faithful. The 12 Shi'is can still visit him in Pus and, and get heavenly rewards for that. Now, the question is, how does this lead back to the address to Asahib ibn Abad? And I think it does that very, um, very directly and very significantly. If we, if we, because one thing that happens when we move into the Ziara text in the main body of the book, we've got a lot of narrative, we've got a lot of disjointed stuff. It talks about various things which are often, as we've seen, very much in a, a an apologetic or even a polemical vein, presenting a vision of the Imam that is, in some senses more palatable to a non-Twelver audience. That really changes when we get into the Ziara texts. That's not surprising given that, yeah, these are for specific usage by Twelver Shi'is in devotional practices. But once you move into the Ziara texts, you have, and that moon is cursed, of course he is, as are other people, and the Imams are described as, as Twelver Shi'i theology um, usually describes them in terms of they are the Hujaj of Allah on earth and they are indispensable and so on and so forth. And of course, there are 12 Imams. Al-Ridha is only the eighth out of 12 and you need to believe in all 12, of course. It's no good believing in some of them and not other ones. And of course, the Mahdi will come at the end of time. Yes, Al-Ridha did not rise up to fight the Abbasids, but the Abbasids will finally be defeated when the Mahdi rise up at the end of time. Um, and this moves us to not Ziara, but poetry. And this this last text I have brought forth, which is to do with a poet called Da'bal al-Khuza'i, who, um, yeah, as a poet, most <coughs> he, he knew Arada and is most famous for an elegy, which he wrote. Well, no, it seems he wrote more than one poem for him. It's slightly unclear, but certainly he's a poet who's associated by with Arada and a Saduk. Um, presents several narratives about his interactions with the imam. And essentially the character of Di'abal that comes comes out is, is of a slightly disheveled figure as perhaps not, not the most likely candidate for guaranteed salvation, but someone because he is devoted to the imam, because indeed he writes beautiful poems expressing his love for the imams, he he will reach paradise, um, he, he will be saved. And who do we know who writes poems for Arriba? It turns out that at the start of the book, when a Saduk dedicates the work to Ibn Abbad, 
he says, the reason I decided to dedicate this book to you about Imam al-Rida is that you, Asahib ibn Abbad, wrote some poems praising him, and I thought they were very good, and so here's a book about the Imam for you. And so we have that starting frame of, of Ibn Abbad, who has praised the Imam in verse and perhaps wants to know more about him. The bulk of this work is taken up by a portrait of a figure who acknowledges the Imam to some degree, but imperfectly, and so ultimately is damned for it. Al-Ma'mun, to an extent, recognizes al-Rida, but ultimately um, is, is turned against him. In contrast, we have Di'bal, who praises the Imam in verse and is a fairly disheveled figure. He's not a mighty potentate. He's not a mighty potentate like Al-Ma'mun or indeed Ibn Abbad, but because he loves the Imam properly, because he acknowledges all 12 Imams, he's not just someone who, who praises him with, with some poems, but that he's a fully signed up Imami, he will be saved. So I think that it's very difficult to read the the portrait of al-Ma'mun that al-Saduq presents in Uyun and how he frames it with this address to Ibn Abad at one end and these anecdotes about Di'abil the poet at the other end without seeing it as an address to Ibn Abad that says you have a choice you can either be al-Ma'mun the mighty potentate who acknowledges the imam but ultimately um, acknowledges him insufficiently and so is damned or you can be Di'bal, who wrote lovely poems like you and was a true follower of the Imam, who was a true follower of all 12 Imams, even though obviously he didn't meet the 12 Imam because he died before him. Um, you have a choice. This is this is an audacious thing to say to an all-powerful vizier. It's not something that a Saduk could have said directly without getting in trouble. But Hadith compilation is very good for that because this is all between the arranged Hadith. All Saduk is saying, here's a, all Saduk is doing is saying, here's a Hadith, here's another Hadith, and here's another Hadith. But how the way in which the images stack up, the way in which the, the images of these characters accumulate with story after story of their characters and interactions leaves it, um, I think, incontrovertibly clear that, that these are the choices. This is the moral typology that Saduk is, is setting out in this work. Um, I, I know we started late, but it's, um, it's now 3.40, and so I think I will stop there. No, I've thought of a thing. I don't know if anyone's read Ayun. Um, it's a difficult work to kind of throw compilation criticism at because the middle of it is is just three very long chapters: Al Akbar Al Mutafarraka, Al Akbar Al Manthura, and Al Akbar Al Majmu'a, which, as far as I can tell, are just big piles of hadith from Al Rida with no particular structure going on in terms in terms of how they are arranged or anything else. It's an odd thing for a Saduk to do. He doesn't do it elsewhere. Usually he's fairly meticulous about arranging the hadith and putting them into chapters and so on and so forth. So why in the middle of this book, which is substantially very carefully arranged, we, we have, you know, the stories about the caliphs and so on and so forth. But in the middle, we just got this big pile of stuff. Why? And I think potentially a reason for that could be that, again, I started by noting that Ibn Abad didn't like um, traditionism very much. He was generally cynical of Hadith. And so this is a book in which Asaduk is saying the most important thing is how you relate to the Imam when you encounter the Imam. Either you reject him and are damned or you accept him properly and so are saved. And it's the 10th century. The Imam is now hidden and the only and throughout Asaduk's oeuvre, his, his most important driving concern is to justify the Imam's Hadith which is all that now remains of access to the imams as, as perfect access, as a way that is totally capable of giving believers the guidance they need and which they once got from a living imam. And so I think 
again, framing it around this story of encounters of the with the imams that can go either way, Sadduq is essentially almost mocking Ibn Abbad and saying, this is what you need. This this pile of ahadith, just Arruda said this, Arruda said that, that is that is your route to salvation. You can either take it or leave it. Um, yes, good. I'm glad I remembered that point. That is the end. Um, yes, thank you very much.